The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to episode 305 of The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. It's February, which is Valentine's Day month. The month for love and loving and lovers. We won't have too much of that today, but next week is going to be all love all the time, starting with a professor who writes about her love affair with the poetry of John Keats. I think you will enjoy that one. Today, we have something different. We're following up on Monday's conversation with Chigozi Obioma, which was a fun one, and he got me thinking about the remains of the day that great novel. We've discussed Kazuo Ishiguro a couple of times before here on the History of Literature. He's a favorite, for sure, and one of Mike's all-time favorites as well. But he also takes risks. I think he appeared in our Hatchet Jobs episode, if I recall correctly. He's taken a few savage beatings from the critics. But when he connects... He's glorious, and The Remains of the Day is one of those almost universally beloved works. If readers complain, they say it's too slow, it's too quiet, not enough happens, they get bored. But for literature fans, I think that's part of the appeal. Not the slowness, but the hush. It's a book for people who think, who appreciate subtlety, who find something intensely dramatic in an inner life full of ideas and rules and self-belief, values, and then the cracking open of that system of beliefs. I'm not just talking about epiphany, which I tend to think is overrated. Epiphany can fall into cliché now that we've had a hundred years or so of it in literary fiction, but Ishiguro goes deep. He gets at more than just the casual... And then I realized, dot, 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 that some stories settle for. His query or inquiry is different. What happens when we structure our world around one belief system and then we start to see some holes in that system? We see some flaws, some gaps. We recognize some roads not taken. Meaning shifts. Our sense of order shifts The way we've organized our lives shifts, and what happens then? Do we let ourselves live with that truth? Do we live with regret? Do we change our ways? Do we double down and and clutch at the familiar? Is it too late for us? Is it too late for us? That's the question, isn't it? When you hit a certain age, what have I done? What has this meant? And is it too late now? There are intense moments of poetic beauty in this novel, and it sneaks up on you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm not sure if you've noticed 
what we've been doing this year, I've tried to pair up our episodes to dig a little deeper into these works, spend a little more time with these authors. We're still on our two-a-week episode schedule, but instead of doing 104 different topics this year, that's 52 times two, I thought, well, let's see if we can linger a little bit. Whenever I finish an episode, it pains me that I'm leaving stuff out. So I thought, let's just take some time and keep exploring this year. Let's do some, some, let's give some topics two episodes. Chigozi Obioma chose The Remains of the Day as his book to look at, so let's take a look at that book up close. Here's what we're going to do today. Some background on Kazuo Shiguro and this book, The Remains of the Day. Some listener emails, and then I'll read the opening to The Remains of the Day, one of our annotated readings of a sort. I'll pause to make a few comments along the way, or maybe I'll just... Let it flow. We'll see. But we will give you the flavor of the work. You can then decide if this book is for you, if you want to hear more or read more, or if you've read it before, you might enjoy just hearing someone read it again, remind you of what it's all about. But even if you don't like the book, if you do, or if you decide you don't want to dive back into it, we'll cover some of the key ideas and what it all means, and that'll help you out. So we'll start all that after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here's an email from the Philippines, or a pair of them. Subject, thank you. The History of Literature podcast is brilliant, informative, and a blessing that fortunately came into my life at just the right moment. Thank you for sharing this to the world. Peace and blessings with a heart shape from the Philippines. So I responded to this email... I love the Philippines, by the way. I have many fond memories of hiking there, living there, including the rice terraces, absolutely gorgeous, and the beaches and Manila. Ugh, what a great country. Great, great people. Can't wait to go back someday. Have to put that one on the tour. So the follow-up was, Hello, Jack. Sending another thank you for episode 302. It's four in the morning when I finished listening to this amazing episode about Jane Austen and Thomas Lefroy, and I can't go back to sleep 
because I'm still in a dreamlike state, thinking of the beauty and sadness of it. I'm excited to listen to episode 303, but I want to send the email first to let you and the History of Literature podcast team know how grateful I am to have something like this to listen to. I discovered your podcast last September, and I'm still trying my best to keep up, but keep the episodes coming because I'll be looking forward to them. Thanks again for what you do. With much gratitude and respect, JL Monique. You're very welcome. Speaking of pairs, we had a pair of emails there, didn't we? Jane and, and a pair a pair about the in that episode, Jane and Tom. And we went into Pride and Prejudice for episode 303. I hope you've enjoyed that one by now. I can't go back to sleep because I'm still in a dreamlike state, thinking of the beauty and sadness of it. People, I can't do any better than that. If that's your response to an episode, if that's one listener's response to an episode of this humble little podcast, staying awake in a dreamlike state, thinking of the beauty and the sadness of it, I just feel a great surge of pride. I can't do any better than that. Thank you very much for sharing that with me, JL and Monique, and I hope you continue to enjoy the show. We've had some sad love stories, haven't we? Sad and beautiful. The Brownings and Anna Akhmatova and Amadeo Modigliani. And of course, all those sad love stories in literature like Madame Bovary and Anna Karenina and on and on. Last episode... We had a little sadness. Our friend Z in that southern state whose friend told him about the podcast and it looked for a moment like they might get together, but alas, it was not to be. Or our friend in New Jersey was driving all night on his way to a breakup. Man, oh man, oh man. Luckily, we have some love next week to cheer us up. And then I think... Oh, just when I say that, I think, oh, yeah, great, a beautiful love story. That's Keats. That poor guy, doomed from the get-go, died at 26. Are we going to be all gloomy next week when we talk about love? I hope not. But I do like a few clouds in my sky, people. Remember that. So, let's move on. Kazuo Ishiguro was born in Nagasaki, Japan in 1955. The son of an oceanographer and his wife, he moved to England when he was five years old and lived there in Surrey and didn't return to Japan for almost 30 years. And yet, he lived a Japanese life, partially as his parents spoke it at home and he ate Japanese food and so on. Here's what he said in 2017 about his English childhood. Quote, But all this time... I was leading another life at home with my Japanese parents. At home, there were different rules, different expectations, a different language. My parents' original intention had been that we return to Japan after a year, perhaps two. In fact, for our first 11 years in England, we were in a perpetual state of going back, quote, next year, end quote. As a result, my parents' outlook remained that of visitors, not of immigrants. They'd often exchange observations about the curious customs of the natives without feeling any onus to adopt them. And for a long time, the assumption remained that I would return to live my adult life in Japan 
and efforts were made to keep up the Japanese side of my education. Each month, a parcel arrived from Japan, containing the previous month's comics, magazines, and educational digests, all of which I devoured eagerly. These parcels stopped arriving sometime in my teens, perhaps after my grandfather's death, but my parents' talk of old friends, relatives, episodes from their lives in Japan all kept up a steady supply of images and impressions, and then I always had my own store of memories, surprisingly vast and clear, of my grandparents, of favorite toys I'd left behind, the traditional Japanese house we'd lived in, which I can even today reconstruct in my mind, room by room. My kindergarten, the local tram stop, the fierce dog that lived by the bridge, the chair in the barber's shop, specially adapted for small boys, with a car steering wheel fixed in front of the big mirror. End quote. Ishiguro was intensely aware that he was both British and Asian, or you can look at that another way and say that he was not British like his schoolmates and not Japanese like the kids his age who were growing up in Japan. He was neither, and he was both. He's a double insider, but also a perpetual outsider. You can see where this benefits a novelist, as he can get traction in a number of different places. If you're trying to move a car forward through mud, it's easier to have some bumps and rough spots to help your tires find their way. He traveled to the United States and Canada for a while, and he went on to study English and creative writing at school in the UK. But when it came time to write his books, he set his first two novels in Japan, which he later acknowledged was an imaginary Japan, a Japan he had recreated in his head. He became a writer pretty much since, pretty much when the when he published his first novel, when he was 27, he started winning prizes right from the start. And then his third novel, The Remains of the Day, launched him into the stratosphere. He won the Booker Prize for it in 1989, and he was honored with an OBE six years later, and he won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2017. He had written a few other books in the meantime, including When We Were Orphans and Never Let Me Go, but I think The Remains of the Day, the novel and the film with Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson are still what make him the most famous. I don't know. Never Let Me Go is pretty popular, too. That's up there. I think that might be Mike's favorite. Okay, the Nobel Prize Committee said Ishiguro, quote, in novels of great emotional force, has uncovered the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world. End quote. Let's move to the remains of the day. I'll let Ishiguro set up the story. He said, quote, March 1988. I was 33 years old. We now had a sofa, and I was lying across it, listening to a Tom Waits album. The previous year, Lorna and I had bought our own house in an unfashionable but pleasant part of South London, and in this house, for the first time, I had my own study. It was small and didn't have a door, but I was thrilled to spread my papers around and not have to clear them away at the end of each day. And in that study, or so I believed, I'd just finished my third novel. It was my first not to have a Japanese setting, my personal Japan having been made less fragile by the writing of my previous novels. In fact, my new book, to be called The Remains of the Day, 
seemed English in the extreme, though not, I hoped, in the manner of many British authors of the older generation. I'd been careful not to assume, as I felt many of them did, that my readers were all English, with native familiarity of English nuances and preoccupations. By then, writers like Salman Rushdie and V.S. Naipaul had forged the way for a more international, outward-looking British literature, one that didn't claim any centrality or automatic importance for Britain. Their writing was post-colonial in the widest sense. I wanted, like them, to write international fiction that could easily cross cultural and linguistic boundaries, even while writing a story set in what seemed a peculiarly English world. My version of England would be a kind of mythical one, whose outlines, I believed, were already present in the imaginations of many people around the world, including those who had never visited the country. The story I'd just finished was about an English butler who realizes, too late in his life, that he has lived his life by the wrong values, and that he's given his best years to serving a Nazi sympathizer. That by failing to take moral and political responsibility for his life, he has, in some profound sense, wasted that life. And more, that in his bid to become the perfect servant, he has forbidden himself to love, or be loved by, the one woman he cares for. I'd read through my manuscript several times, and I'd been reasonably satisfied. Still, there was a niggling feeling that something was missing. Mm, end quote. Something was missing. Let's take our final break. We'll start reading the story, and then return to the question of what was missing, what he managed to insert and how that... Tra- it's interesting, isn't it? Something was missing. When he describes the story, it sounds like everything's there. Right? He's got the Nazi sympathizer. He's got the failing to take moral and political responsibility for his life. He's got the, he, the bid to become a perfect servant. He's got the love story. What was missing? What on earth was missing? All of the elements of the plot were there. Seemingly, but something was missing. So, we will explore that question and come up with some answers. Ishiguro's own answers. After this. Again and again, but something was missing. I never quite knew. But who my speeches are greeted with thunderous acclaim at two universities bearing my name, yet something was missing each time I got through that something was the remains of the day. Prologue, July 1956, Darlington Hall. It seems increasingly likely that I really will undertake the expedition that has been preoccupying my imagination now for some days. An expedition, I should say, which I will undertake alone, in the comfort of Mr. Faraday's Ford. An expedition which, as I foresee it, 
will take me through much of the finest countryside of England to the West Country, and may keep me away from Darlington Hall for as much as five or six days. The idea of such a journey came about, I should point out, from a most kind suggestion put to me by Mr. Faraday himself one afternoon, almost a fortnight ago, when I had been dusting the portraits in the library. In fact, as I recall, I was up on the stepladder, dusting the portrait of Viscount Weatherby, when my employer had entered carrying a few volumes which he presumably wished returned to the shelves. On seeing my person, he took the opportunity to inform me that he had just that moment finalized plans to return to the United States for a period of five weeks between August and September. Having made this announcement, my employer put his volumes down on a table, seated himself on the chaise longue, and stretched out his legs. It was then, gazing up at me, that he said, "'You realize, Stevens, I don't expect you to be locked up here in this house all the time I'm away. Why don't you take the car and drive off somewhere for a few days? You look like you could make good use of a break.' Coming out of the blue as it did, I did not quite know how to reply to such a suggestion. I recall thanking him for his consideration, but quite probably I said nothing very definite, for my employer went on. I'm serious, Stevens. I really think you should take a break. I'll foot the bill for the gas. You fellows, you're always locked up in these big houses helping out. How do you ever get to see around this beautiful country of yours? This was not the first time my employer had raised such a question. Indeed, it seems to be something which genuinely troubles him. On this occasion, in fact, a reply of sorts did occur to me as I stood up there on the ladder, a reply to the effect that those of our profession, although we did not see a great deal of the country in the sense of touring the countryside and visiting picturesque sites, did actually see more of England than most placed as we were in houses where the greatest ladies and gentlemen of the land gathered. Of course, I could not have expressed this view to Mr. Faraday without embarking upon what might have seemed a presumptuous speech. I thus contented myself by saying simply, It has been my privilege to see the best of England over the years, sir, within these very walls. Mr. Faraday did not seem to understand this statement, for he merely went on, I mean it, Stevens. It's wrong that a man can't get to see around his own country. Take my advice. Get out of the house for a few days. As you might expect, I did not take Mr. Faraday's suggestion at all seriously that afternoon, regarding it as just another instance of an American gentleman's unfamiliarity with what was and what was not commonly done in England. The fact that my attitude to this same suggestion underwent a change over the following days, indeed, that the notion of a trip to the West Country took an ever-increasing hold on my thoughts, is no doubt substantially attributable to, and why should I hide it, the arrival of Miss Kenton's letter, her first in almost seven years, if one discounts the Christmas cards. But let me make it immediately clear what I mean by this. What I mean to say is that Miss Kenton's letter set off a certain chain of ideas to do with professional matters here at Darlington Hall, and I would underline that it was a preoccupation with these very same professional matters that led me to consider anew my employer's kindly meant suggestion. 
but let me explain further. The fact is, over the past few months, I have been responsible for a series of small errors in the carrying out of my duties. I should say that these errors have all been, without exception, quite trivial in themselves. Nevertheless, I think you will understand that to one not accustomed to committing such errors, this development was rather disturbing, and I did in fact begin to entertain all sorts of alarmist theories as to their cause. As so often occurs in these situations, I had become blind to the obvious. That is, until my pondering over the implications of Miss Kenton's letter finally opened my eyes to the simple truth, that these small errors of recent months have derived from nothing more sinister than a faulty staff plan. It is, of course, the responsibility of every butler to devote his utmost care in the devising of a staff plan. Who knows how many quarrels, false accusations, unnecessary dismissals, how many promising careers cut short can be attributed to a butler's slovenliness at the stage of drawing up the staff plan. Indeed, I can say I am in agreement with those who say that the ability to draw up a good staff plan is the cornerstone of any decent butler's skills. I have myself devised many staff plans over the years, and I do not believe I am being unduly boastful if I say that very few ever needed amendment. And if in the present case the staff plan is at fault, blame can be laid at no one's door but my own. At the same time, it is only fair to point out that my task in this instance had been of an unusually difficult order. What had occurred was this. Once the transactions were over, transactions which had taken this house out of the hands of the Darlington family after two centuries, Mr. Faraday let it be known that he would not be taking up immediate residence here, but would spend a further four months concluding matters in the United States. In the meantime, however, he was most keen that the staff of his predecessor, a staff of which he had heard high praise, be retained at Darlington Hall. This staff, he referred to, was, of course, nothing more than the skeleton team of six, kept on by Lord Darlington's relatives, to administer to the house up to and throughout the transactions, and I regret to report that once the purchase had been completed, there was little I could do for Mr. Faraday to prevent all but Mrs. Clements leaving for other employment. When I wrote to my new employer conveying my regrets at the situation, I received by reply from America instructions to recruit a new staff worthy of a grand old English house. I immediately set about trying to fulfill Mr. Faraday's wishes, but as you know, finding recruits of a satisfactory standard is no easy task nowadays. And although I was pleased to hire Rosemary and Agnes on Mrs. Clements's recommendation, I had got no further by the time I came to have my first business meeting with Mr. Faraday, during the short preliminary visit he made to our shores in the spring of last year. It was on that occasion, in the strangely bare study of Darlington Hall, that Mr. Faraday shook my hand for the first time. But by then we were hardly strangers to each other. Quite aside from the matter of the staff, my new employer, in several other instances, had had occasion to call upon such qualities as it may be my good fortune to possess, and found them to be, I would venture, dependable. 
So it was, I assume, that he felt immediately able to talk to me in a businesslike and trusting way, and by the end of our meeting, he had left me with the administration of a not inconsiderable sum to meet the costs of a wide range of preparations for his coming residency. In any case, my point is that it was during the course of this interview, when I raised the question of the difficulty of recruiting suitable staff in these times, that Mr. Faraday, after a moment's reflection, made his request of me, that I do my best to draw up a staff plan, some sort of servant's rota, as he put it, by which this house might be run on the present staff of four. That is to say, Mrs. Clements, the two young girls, and myself. This might, he appreciated, mean putting sections of the house under wraps. But would I bring all my experience and expertise to bear to ensure such losses were kept to a minimum? Recalling a time when I had had a staff of seventeen under me, and knowing how not so long ago a staff of twenty-eight had been employed here at Darlington Hall, the idea of devising a staff plan by which the same house would be run on a staff of four seemed, to say the least, daunting. Although I did my best not to, something of my skepticism must have betrayed itself, for Mr. Faraday then added, as though for reassurance, that were it to prove necessary, then an additional member of staff could be hired. But he would be much obliged, he repeated, if I could give it a go with four. Now, naturally, like many of us, I have a reluctance to change too much of the old ways. But there is no virtue at all in clinging, as some do, to tradition merely for its own sake. In this age of electricity and modern heating systems, there is no need at all to employ the sorts of numbers necessary even a generation ago. Indeed, it has actually been an idea of mine for some time that the retaining of unnecessary numbers simply for tradition's sake, resulting in employees having an unhealthy amount of time on their hands, has been an important factor in the sharp decline in professional standards. Furthermore, Mr. Faraday had made it clear that he planned to hold only very rarely the sort of large social occasions Darlington Hall had seen frequently in the past. I did then go about the task Mr. Faraday had set me with some dedication. I spent many hours working on the staff plan, and at least as many hours again thinking about it as I went about other duties or as I lay awake after retiring. Whenever I believed I had come up with something, I probed it for every sort of oversight, tested it through from all angles. Finally, I came up with a plan which, while perhaps not exactly as Mr. Faraday had requested, was the best, I felt sure, that was humanly possible. Almost all the attractive parts of the house could remain operative. The extensive servants' quarters, including the back corridor, the two still rooms and the old laundry, and the guest corridor up on the second floor would be dust-sheeted, leaving all the main ground-floor rooms and a generous number of guest rooms. Admittedly, our present team of four would manage this program only with reinforcement from some daily workers. My staff plan therefore took in the services of a gardener to visit once a week, twice in the summer, and two cleaners, each to visit twice a week. The staff plan would, furthermore, for each of the four resident employees mean a radical altering of our respective 
customary duties. The two young girls, I predicted, would not find such changes so difficult to accommodate, but I did all I could to see that Mrs. Clements suffered the least adjustments, to the extent that I undertook for myself a number of duties which you may consider most broad-minded of a butler to do. Even now, I would not go so far as to say it is a bad staff plan. After all, it enables a staff of four to cover an unexpected amount of ground. But you will no doubt agree that the very best staff plans are those which give clear margins of error to allow for those days when an employee is ill or, for one reason or another, below par. In this particular case, of course, I had been set a slightly extraordinary task, but I had nevertheless not been neglectful to incorporate margins wherever possible. I was especially conscious that any resistance there may be on the part of Mrs. Clements or the two girls to the taking on of duties beyond their traditional boundaries would be compounded by any notion that their workloads had greatly increased. I had then, over those days of struggling with the staff plan, expended a significant amount of thought to ensuring that Mrs. Clements and the girls, once they had got over their aversion to adopting these more eclectic roles, would find the division of duties stimulating and unburdensome. I fear, however, that in my anxiety to win the support of Mrs. Clements and the girls, I did not perhaps assess quite as stringently my own limitations, and although my experience and customary caution in such matters prevented my giving myself more than I could actually carry out, I was perhaps negligent over this question of allowing myself a margin. It is not surprising, then, if over several months this oversight should reveal itself in these small but telling ways. In the end, I believe the matter to be no more complicated than this. I had given myself too much to do. You may be amazed that such an obvious shortcoming to a staff plan should have continued to escape my notice, but then you will agree that such is often the way with matters one has given abiding thought to over a period of time. One is not struck by the truth until prompted quite accidentally by some external event. So it was in this instance, that is to say, my receiving the letter from Miss Kenton, containing as it did, along with its long, rather unrevealing passages, an unmistakable nostalgia for Darlington Hall, and, I am quite sure of this, distinct hints of her desire to return here, obliged me to see my staff plan afresh. Only then did it strike me that there was indeed a role that a further staff member could crucially play here, that it was, in fact, this very shortage that had been at the heart of all my recent troubles. And the more I considered it, the more obvious it became that Miss Kenton with her great affection for this house, with her exemplary professionalism, the sort almost impossible to find nowadays, was just the factor needed to enable me to complete a fully satisfactory staff plan for Darlington Hall. Having made such an analysis of the situation, it was not long before I found myself reconsidering Mr. Faraday's kind suggestion of some days ago, for it had occurred to me that the proposed trip in the car could be put to good professional use. That is to say, I could drive to the West Country and call on Miss Kenton in passing, thus exploring at first hand the substance of her wish to return to employment here at Darlington Hall. 
Hmm. Let's pause there. What happens next is Stevens, the butler, thinks through the costs, realizes he has to consult his employer again, and his employer sort of misinterprets what he's asking and thinks he has a lady friend, which embarrasses Stevens and leads him into a question of bantering, which is part of how he views his relationship with his new American employer. What do I do when my boss teases me? He thinks to himself. He's not being unkind. He's just talking to me as if we're sort of pals. But he's my boss. I'm the butler, the servant. He's an American. He doesn't understand my ways. And we think, your ways, your ways, you're a prisoner of your ways. This is the story we see coming. The blinkered view as Chigozi Obioma put it last time, Stevens tries to banter with Faraday, and it's heartbreaking how it doesn't work. And he smiles his way through it, but it's not going to work. It's impossible for him, and he criticizes himself for not being good at it. We feel his pain even as we wish that he was not under such a tight set of self-restrictions. But don't we all have these self-restrictions? In love and in life, how many of us say the things we want or have things work out all the time? How many times have you beaten yourself up over something that wasn't your fault? That was insignificant to the person you were speaking to. And we start to realize from this prologue that this guy, Stevens, has led a very particular kind of life that has molded him in a very particular kind of way. He's a dutiful, obedient servant that's what he wants that's what he knows that's what he is he's not pushing back against it in any way that he feels conscious about the system has created him he is living within it and he wants that system to succeed and ishiguro is kind of indicting or maybe i should say exposing the system and its effect on this butler part of me reads this and thinks wow So this is what it's like to be a butler at this time, in this place. Maybe it's not real, but it feels real to me. But Ishiguro isn't just saying, look at this, look, we're we're cutting the life out of these people. The system is bad. It drains them of their humanity and their energy. He's saying, how fascinating that a person develops these guideposts and markers that they develop their own sense of morality and fairness and justice and what it means to do a good job and what it means to be good. It's what's so fascinating about movies like The Godfather, where you see a subculture where all the rules are slightly different. How does one organize oneself and maintain consistency and believe in what one is doing? What does it mean to be a good person in this world? What does it mean to be successful and honorable and happy? And then when you encounter works like this, you look at your own life and you say, well, okay, I don't swim in those waters, but I'm a fish too. I'm human like they are. What rules are in place where I am? How do I define success? How do I define happiness? What gives me the sense that I'm doing a good job? How do I interact with others? And how do I interact with myself, so to speak? What fulfills me? What misconceptions do I operate under? 
This is the journey that Ishiguro promises. It's very internal, and yet it's based on this trip, getting outside of the four walls physically, encountering the new. It will stretch him for sure. Will it break him? Will something in him break? And how? What will happen when that does? And will it be a a shattering like a delicate glass all going to bits or a, a frozen flower? bursts into tiny bits of color that no longer mean anything? Or will it be more like the cracking of the frozen surface that lets us access the deeper waters below? There's more in the prologue, but I want to jump to day one to give you a flavor of the journey as this man Stevens, the butler, is setting out. Day one, evening, Salisbury. Tonight, I find myself here in a guest house in the city of Salisbury. The first day of my trip is now completed, and all in all, I must say I am quite satisfied. This expedition began this morning almost an hour later than I had planned, despite my having completed my packing and loaded the Ford with all necessary items well before eight o'clock. What with Mrs. Clements and the girls also gone for the week, I suppose I was very conscious of the fact that once I departed, Darlington Hall would stand empty for probably the first time this century, perhaps for the first time since the day it was built. It was an odd feeling, and perhaps accounts for why I delayed my departure so long, wandering around the house many times over, checking one last time that all was in order. It is hard to explain my feelings once I did finally set off. For the first twenty minutes or so of motoring, I cannot say I was seized by any excitement or anticipation at all. This was due, no doubt, to the fact that though I motored further and further from the house, I continued to find myself in surroundings with which I had at least a passing acquaintance. Now I had always supposed I had traveled very little, restricted as I am by my responsibilities in the house, but of course, over time, one does make various excursions for one professional reason or another, and it would seem I have become much more acquainted with those neighboring districts than I had realized. For, as I say, as I motored on in the sunshine towards the Berkshire border, I continued to be surprised by the familiarity of the country around me. But then, eventually, the surroundings grew unrecognizable, and I knew I had gone beyond all previous boundaries. I have heard people describe the moment when setting sail in a ship when one finally loses sight of the land. I imagine the experience of unease mixed with exhilaration often described in connection with this moment is very similar to what I felt in the Ford as the surroundings grew strange around me. This occurred just after I took a turning and found myself on a road curving around the edge of a hill. I could sense the steep drop to my left, though I could not see it due to the trees and thick foliage that lined the roadside. The feeling swept over me that I had truly left Darlington Hall behind, and I must confess I did feel a slight sense of alarm, a sense aggravated by the feeling that I was perhaps not on the correct road at all but speeding off in totally the wrong direction, into a wilderness. He's going almost nowhere. <laughs> He's not going far. 
A million people take journeys less consequential every single day than what he's done so far. My own commute pre-pandemic was probably more miles measured physically, but this isn't just a trip through the countryside that he's starting out on. It's a profound change for him to leave this house, and for that, we don't need to go far. We just need to go somewhere new, and we need to let ourselves experience the newness of it. He's not just traveling. He's opening himself. Now, what does all this do in the end? If it just said, and so I learned that it was great to try new things and see new places, well, who cares if we're grown-ups? We learned that in kindergarten. And Ishiguro originally had another idea for the book, which is maybe more realistic, but would not have made this novel as good as it is. Remember, he said, something was missing. Something was missing, even with the revelation that his previous master had been a Nazi sympathizer, even with his revelation that he was in love, that he could be in love, that he'd blocked himself from feeling that. Something was still missing. Let's listen to Ishiguro describe it. He says, quote, Then, as I say, there I was in our house one evening on our sofa, listening to Tom Waits. And Tom Waits began to sing a song called Ruby's Arms. Perhaps some of you know it. I even thought about singing it to you at this point, but I've changed my mind. It's a ballad about a man, possibly a soldier, leaving his lover asleep in bed. It's the early morning. He goes down the road, gets on a train. Nothing unusual in that. But the song is delivered in the voice of a gruff American hobo, utterly unaccustomed to revealing his deeper emotions. And there comes a moment, midway through the song, when the singer tells us that his heart is breaking. The moment is almost unbearably moving because of the tension between the sentiment itself and the huge resistance that's obviously been overcome to declare it. Tom Waits sings the song with cathartic magnificence, and you feel a lifetime of tough-guy stoicism crumbling in the face of overwhelming sadness. End quote. Oh, boy. That's what was missing. That's what was missing. And it all came to him thanks to the singing of Tom Waits, the way he sang this line with cathartic magnificence. This American hobo, unaccustomed to revealing his deeper emotions, and suddenly telling us that his heart is breaking. Now, don't you want to hear that? Don't you want to hear? Doesn't that make you want to hear the Tom Waits song? Here's a guy, here's a novelist, Ishiguro, writing a whole novel about an English butler. An English butler of all things, and then hearing a song about an American hobo and thinking, something in my novel needs fixing. I need to add something. Something else needs to be there. Something is missing. And he heard it not just from the lyrics of the song, but from the way the song is sung. Doesn't that make you want to hear the Tom Waits song? Well, listener, let me put on my Santa Claus hat and put your gift under the tree.
Here we go. Ishiguro again, quote, As I listened to Tom Waits, I realized what I'd still left to do. I'd unthinkingly made the decision, somewhere way back, that my English butler would maintain his emotional defenses, that he'd managed to hide behind them from himself and his reader to the very end. Now I saw I had to reverse that decision just for one moment towards the end of my story, a moment I'd have to choose carefully I had to make his armor crack. I had to allow a vast and tragic yearning to be glimpsed underneath. End quote. How excellent is that? And remember this when you think about what you're going to read about in this novel. Ishiguro didn't live life as an English butler in the 1950s. He was barely born then himself. He's a lot closer to Tom Waits. They're only six years apart. And I'm not that close generationally to Ishiguro, and I'm not English, and I'm not Japanese, and I'm even farther away from being an English butler in the 1950s than he is. But Waits got to Ishiguro just like this butler gets to me. And just like the butler got to Chigozi Obioma, who's even younger than I am and who also came from a completely different place. It's because of this. We're looking at the vast and tragic yearning, which is true everywhere and at all times. One more paragraph from Ishiguro, and then we're done. He says, quote, I should say here that I have, on a number of other occasions, learned crucial lessons from the voices of singers. I refer here less to the lyrics being sung and more to the actual singing. As we know, a human voice in song is capable of expressing an unfathomably complex blend of feelings. Over the years, specific aspects of my writing have been influenced by, among others, Bob Dylan, Nina Simone, Emmylou Harris, Ray Charles, Bruce Springsteen, Gillian Welch, and my friend and collaborator, Stacy Kent. Catching something in their voices... I've said to myself, Ah, yes, that's it. That's what I need to capture in that scene. 
something very close to that. Often it's an emotion I can't quite put into words, but there it is, in the singer's voice. And now I've been given something to aim for. Jesus Christ, this goddamn rain will someone put me on a train. I'll never kiss your lips again. Oh, break your Ishiguru something to aim for, and we readers are not standing by idly. He's aiming for it, and we benefit. Because you know what? It's not just something that a writer does alone. He does a lot of the work, sure, but without us, none of this matters. Without us reading, it's just words on a page. We need to be open to it as well. We need to feel what it means to feel feel this complex blend of feelings. He has something to aim for, and he might say that it's aiming for an artistic goal or an emulation of the power of great singers or some ineffable artistic quality. But that's not true, is it? Or it's true, but there's more. He has something to aim for, and that target is us. Our minds, our memories, our hearts, and our souls. He is trying to reach them. And if we are any good, we open ourselves up too. And maybe, if we are reading the right way, as engaged as we should be, we even try to reach back. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Kazuo Ishiguro for this wonderful novel and to our listener emailers. I guess we, who did we have? Oh, yeah. Two emails from the Philippines, but from the same person, JL Monique. Thank you very much for checking in, JL. We are teamed up with LitHub Radio, and we're part of the team at Podglomerate. Learn more at www.thepodglomerate.com. I hope you come back for some love next week with John Keats on our list. And we've got some Machado, Machado Diaz. We've got some Brazilian authors cooking. I'll learn how to pronounce it before the episode. And we've got Lorraine Hansberry. You won't want to miss that one, right? A Raisin in the Sun and more Frederick Douglass as well. We had to postpone our part two with him, but he's worthy of another episode. How about Anna North? Remember the partial interview we ran with her during our genre month when we looked at Westerns? Well, now we are able to run the full interview. 
Her book is out. So much good stuff to cover. I hope you're here for all of it, and I hope you tell all your friends to keep this party going. (laughs) Maybe I should just keep talking and fade out like rock songs used to do, as if we're just here rocking away, rocking all night. We're not stopping. It's the radio that's moving on, but we're still here in the studio. Nothing can stop us. It's not me that's getting smaller. It's the pictures that got bigger. No, the other way around. (laughs) Uh, Learn more at www.historyofliterature.com and come back for some Wordsworth. And guess what? Lolita's on the calendar, probably in April, it looks like. And Leslie Marmon-Silco and Elizabeth Gaskell and Lawrence Stern and more guests and more Mike Palindrome and... The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.